she won't hear that, but my wife is a great mom. But I remember, you know, you look back over your time as a parent and you, you see those moments in your life, those very memorable moments, right? And I remember uh, the day that our first daughter was born, Grace, uh, 11 years ago. We didn't know if we were going to have a boy or a girl. We wanted to kind of keep that uh, under wraps until she came out. But secretly, I was kind of hoping for a girl. I was, I was kind of praying maybe for a girl. And uh, so when she was born and everybody was healthy and the doctor said, congratulations, it's a girl, I just remember just breaking down in tears, just crying and thinking, oh God, thank you so much for giving me this girl. And then thinking, I'm not really worthy. I don't know what to do with a girl. The truth is that God, I, I talked last week about how God prepares us for things. I had five sisters growing up and no brothers. And so God prepared me for having girls. And we have two girls now. But even before that moment, I remember the time that my wife told me she was pregnant, that we were going to have a baby. I remember I was on a ladder in our hallway upstairs. I don't remember if I was changing light bulbs or painting or something. And she came up, you know, with the pregnancy test, the little stick with a plus on it. And um, I remember uh, just looking at it and looking at her and, and being about 30% excited and 70% really scared and not knowing exactly how to react. And so I just hugged her and, and I started crying. I noticed there's a trend to these stories now. They always end up with me crying. And both of those are very memorable moments, but none of them were defining moments, okay? A defining moment in your life is when you, you make a decision that's going to set you on path towards a destination, right? And so I remember the defining moment that happened with my, with my wife becoming a mom, and it was this. Uh, when we got married, uh, we had been married nine and a half years before we had our first child. We got married, and I did not want kids. I was con- convinced that I would never want kids, and I was kind of convinced that my wife wouldn't either, uh, I feel like we talked about that when we were dating, but I don't remember the exact conversation. But I kind of had this feeling that, okay, we were going to get married and, and never have kids because they're going to come in and wreck our lives, right? And so I just decided, I was young, you know, uh, I just decided that we weren't going to have kids. And I remember um, I would travel a lot for work. And over the years, like God started to work on my heart. And I would travel and I'd see uh, kids with their parents in airports. And I remember at first thinking, why are they bringing their kids on this trip? I mean, they're just going to disturb me on the plane. You know, they're running around all over the airport. Nobody's got control of these kids. And then over the years, as I traveled a little bit more, I started to think, oh, look, that dad's bringing his kids on the trip. That's kind of sweet. That's kind of neat. Maybe someday I'd like to do that. And then I remember one night, we were at a TGI Fridays uh, waiting for a table. It was a Friday night, and, and I was, uh, my wife and I were sitting on one of the benches waiting, and there was a family, a, a dad with his two daughters running around at his feet. And I remember just like something hit my heart and just thinking, I, I want to do that someday. I, I want to be that guy. And so I remember coming up behind my wife and just grabbing her around her neck, and, and, and uh, she had been having these feelings before I had. And I didn't really know it at the time, but I remember putting my arms around her neck and saying, Honey, what, what if I decide I want kids someday? And I remember she just broke down and cried. See, this time it was her. <laughs> she just broke down and cried and turned around and gave me a big hug. And that was a defining moment in our lives right there at the TGI Fridays where we decided we were going to go on this path that was going to change our lives forever. And I, I, I loved um, the time I had with my wife. I loved being able to be with her and travel with her and get to see lots of things and get to know her and being, become financially prepared for having kids. But I love now being a dad. It's one of my favorite things in the whole world. But we all have defining moments in our lives. You know, we all have these defining moments, these intersections in your life where you have to make a decision. And you make a decision on what road to take. And that road is going to set you in a direction that's going to take you to a destination. That decision that you make in that moment is going to affect the rest of your life. And if it's a really big decision, it'll affect the rest of your kids' lives. 
and maybe even will affect your legacy. Well, today, as we continue in our series called The Story, we're going to continue looking at King David. The life of King David is so big, it's going to take us two weeks to cover it. And as we look at David's life, we're going to see a series of defining moments and how he responded to them and how it's impacted his ability to lead and his family and even his legacy. And so as we've been through the story, we've talked about a lot of these stories of people in the Old Testament so far and how that's worked. And we've said during this series that there's actually two stories in the Bible, right? There's an upper story, God's upper story, which never changes. And then there's our lower story, which we see as we go through life, we have our ups and downs, right? We're kind of on a roller coaster. We have good days and bad days. And, and if we get focused on the lower story that we can sometimes get tricked into thinking that's all there is. But when we see God's upper story, that, that the, the, the rough roads that we face in life don't affect us as much. Well, as we saw last week, David walked really closely with God. Okay? And so what happened was his lower story, because he's close to God, when we're close to God, our story looks more like God's story, right? As we're walking closer with God, well, David walked very closely with God. And so we didn't see a lot of rough roads in his life. I mean, he had times, you know, with Goliath where there may have been a little fear, obviously. Uh, he, he had times where Saul was pursuing him. But as we watch David's story, his story tracked pretty closely with God's. Well, that's going to change today. And two weeks ago, we talked about a man named Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And as we, wa- we watched as Saul, who was chosen by God uh, through a prophet named Samuel, turned away from Samuel and away from God. And, and as a result, uh, his story spiraled downhill. And-, and God allowed power to shift away from Saul's family in Israel uh, to uh, a young shepherd by the name of David. And last week, we watched as David was faithful to the call of God. And, and he killed a giant named Goliath that everyone else was afraid of. But David wasn't afraid. Because we said that he knew that it was not his strength that was going to go up against Goliath, but it was God's strength. And he knew that God was greater than any giant in our lives. You know, and as David walked closely with God, he was an upright example for Israel. And God continued to bless David. Which brings us to a story that I'll bet you know. The story of David and Bathsheba. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. (laughs) It's a story of sexual morality, no doubt. It's a story of temptation, yes. But what I hope you'll see today, if you can stick with me for the next 20 minutes or so, is that it's a story full of defining moments. And and as we get into the story, we're going to see some of the danger and the consequences of sin and temptation. But if you can stick it out until... In fact, some of you might get mad. You'll get mad. You'll see what happens in their story as this man who closely followed God makes a mistake and things in his life start to spiral out of control. But if you stay with us till the end, I think that you'll see that there's forgiveness and redemption at the end of this story. But what I hope you'll see is through this story, there's a number of defining moments where David could have made a different decision and the story could have turned out differently. But in the end, we're going to talk about one defining moment in particular where he did make the right decision. And as a result, we remember somebody like David much more fondly than we remember a king like Saul. And so I want to read the story together, and then we'll discuss its application, okay? This is in uh, 1 Samuel 11, if you have your Bibles. Uh, if you have the story, obviously, it's at the beginning of chapter 12 of the story. Um, and we're going to read this together, and then we'll discuss its application. It, by the way, if you don't have a copy of the story, I neglected to mention that on the back of your worship program, uh, there's a reading plan for this week and next week. Uh, and we're ending it there because we're going to start a new series, and we're going to take a break from the story after 519. But you can follow along with that. If you don't have a Bible... We have one for you as a gift. Uh, At the Info Hub, there are Bibles there. You're welcome to go get one now, or you're welcome to take one with you when you leave. That's our gift to you, uh, because we think it's important that you read along with us in this series. 
Second uh, Samuel 11, verse 1 is where we're going to start. And I'm going to try to read this whole story without comment, commenting, and, and then we'll comment later. I don't know if I can do it or not, but we're going to try. Second Samuel 11, 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a young woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Uh, Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. David's in trouble. He, he gets another woman pregnant, and it's a woman who's not his wife. Now, David has seven wives, but Bathsheba's not one of them. And not only is she not his wife, but she is somebody's wife. And not just any somebody. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, here's what you need to know about Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was in David's army. And he wasn't just in David's army. He was one of David's commanders, one of what scripture calls David's mighty men. And these were 30 of the bravest, uh, boldest, strongest warriors that served in David's army. And they were kind of the leaders of the troops. Uh, They were the most prominent men, the most fearsome, most skilled fighters in all of Israel. And Uriah the Hittite is one of them. And while they're out fighting David's battles for him, he sleeps with one of their wives and gets her pregnant. Now, if you're especially sympathetic to David at this point, you might be thinking this. Now, wait a minute. He's, it's not his fault. He was just walking around. He, he's out on the roof, and there's this woman uh, very close to his palace roof. Now, we know it was very close because Scripture tells us that he could see that she was very beautiful. And you have to be pretty close. Some scholars think that her rooftop may have been as close as 20 feet from David's rooftop. All right? He would have kept his best warriors pretty close to him. All right, so we knew she was very close, and she's bathing naked on the rooftop. And, and, and this passage says that David could see that she was beautiful. And, and so, but David is the one in control here. All right, David is the king. He's, he's the one that's got all the power. David makes the decision to pursue. He's the one that gives in to temptation. And this is where I think we can take our first application from the story. I think there are three of them. And if you want to follow along in your notes, they're there. Uh, the first one is this. We are most prone to temptation when we're not where we're supposed to be. We're most prone to temptation when we're not where we're supposed to be. Look, if you're on a diet, you don't want to find yourself in the lobby of the flying cupcake. All right? It's just nothing good can come from that. Well, in the same way, you know, if you're, a, if you're an alcoholic, no good will come from going to meet your friends at a bar after work. Right? There's just nothing good that can come from that. Guys, if you've struggled with sexual immorality or with lust or with pornography, there's no reason to be goofing around on your computer after your wife and family goes to bed. Right? There's no reason to be messaging your old girlfriend on Facebook. But ladies, you're not off the hook either. I know it's different for women, but you can be tempted by what you watch, what you listen to, or what you read. Yes, I said what you read. Because in God's eyes, there's wrong and right. There's black and white. There's not 50 shades of gray. Now, you may hear this and you may think, well, he's just a prude. He probably doesn't even like sex. I mean, this church is just anti-fun. Well, I promise you that's not true. But what happens is this kind of thing that we use to satisfy our, our desires, our wants, doesn't really provide what we need in the long term. 
You know, we, we think we want pleasure, but what we really want is intimacy. And these short-term fixes that we use to bring us pleasure can't bring us intimacy. A, a movie can't bring you intimacy. All right, a computer can't bring you intimacy. A book can't give you intimacy. In fact, these sometimes that we think of as just these, these things that we think of as just fun may actually be setting us on a path to a place we don't want to go. What, what we think of as a distraction might actually send us in a direction. Now, some of you may be in a defining moment right now. You might be just days away from starting an affair. You know, you've, you've been talking about it. You've been thinking about it. Your wife doesn't feel so close anymore. Your husband is, is absent from you. And you've been talking to that guy. Or you've been talking to that girl. Or, or you've been texting. Or, or you've been watching at work. And you've been thinking about that. And, and it's really close to happening. You're, you're about ready to, to set off in a direction that is going to be really hard to turn around from. Or, or maybe it has nothing to do with that. Maybe it's a business deal. And your business has just been going bad for a long time. But somebody's got an answer. Somebody's got a solution. And you're about to sign on the dotted line of a deal that's going to set you in a direction that you don't want to go. Or, or, or maybe you're a student and it's with a group of friends and you've been hanging around with some people and you've been kind of on the outskirts, on the fringe of what's going on there, but, but you're about to go to a party or you're about to try something or you're about to do something that's going to set you in a direction that's going to be really hard to turn around from. You're at a defining moment. You're at that intersection in your life. But what you think might just be a diversion might actually be a defining moment that sets you in a direction, that puts you on a path where you don't want to go. And that's what happened with David. We see it in the very first sentence of chapter 12 or, or the very first verse that we just read. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. See, he shouldn't have even been there, let alone on his rooftop. He shouldn't have even been in the city. He should have been at war. Instead, what he did was he sent Uriah, the Hittite, and his other men off to fight his battles for him while he stayed behind. And as a result, he's in a real predicament. But never fear. Because David's a smart man. And he's got a solution. All he's got to do is trick Uriah into coming home and sleeping with his wife. Which should be easy, right? All he's got to do is trick him into that and believing that it's her baby. But the problem is Uriah is off at war. So here's what David does. He sends word to the front lines where Uriah is fighting for Uriah to come back home and meet with the king. And so Uriah comes back. He comes to the palace. He meets with the king. And there's a bunch of small talk that happens. So how's the war going? How are the men? How's the soldiers? And he says to Uriah, go home. I want you to go home. And he says, I want you to go home and wash your feet. Now, that must be some kind of euphemism because I think we know what David needs Uriah to do, right? But Uriah doesn't even go home. He, he ends up sleeping on the palace floor. He, he has too much integrity to go home and be with his wife. He, he thinks about his fellow soldiers out on the battlefield risking their lives. And this is what he says in 2 Samuel eleven eleven: How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. That's the kind of integrity that Uriah has. Well, David keeps trying. You know, he invites him to stay for a couple more days, even, even gets him drunk to get him to go home and sleep with his wife. But Uriah won't give in. He doesn't do it. And so David has to go to plan B, or, or maybe it's plan C. And so in verse 14, we see in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. What is going on? This is David 
who walked so closely with God, you know, that his story was close to God's story. This is the man that God calls a man after my own heart. How can he be so overcome with emotion, with, with lust, with fear, with whatever it is, that he not only sleeps with another man's wife, one of his friend's wives, but then he plots to have him killed. And who does he send the note with to have Uriah killed? He sends it with Uriah. Think how much integrity this guy must have that David trusts him to carry the note that is his own death warrant out to the front lines of the battlefield. Now, here's what's happened. How could someone so strong let his guard down so quickly? It's almost as if David has become a different person. Well, in a way, that's what's happening here. I mean, it's, it's one of the oldest lower story tragedies, and it still happens today. See, what happens is that even though that David didn't go off to war, he's still engaged in a battle. He's engaged in a battle with his own flesh. It's a battle with desire. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are either in this battle now, or you've been in it before, or you're going to be in it someday. I mean, all of us at one time or another, or maybe multiple times, there are times where the mind, the heart... The, the conscious tells us one thing, where the will of God tells us to do one thing, but our flesh says another. You know, the Apostle Paul, writing hundreds of years later, said it this way in Romans seven eighteen. He said, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. It's a great explanation of what our battle with the flesh looks like. And all of us, there's this constant battle raging between the will of God and the will of our flesh. And if we're going to win this battle, we need to submit ourselves to the will of God every time. I mean, even when it's not what's going to satisfy us in the short term. And what that means is that in the defining moments, we don't turn down those paths that lead to temptation. But instead, we stay on the straight path every time. Well, David's plan works. Uriah is killed. David is no longer just an adulterer. He's now an adulterer and a murderer. He he stacks sin on top of sin, bad decision on top of bad decision in order to preserve his integrity, right? And he marries Bathsheba. His sin is now covered up. No one will ever know what's happened, right? Not so fast. See, there are no cover-ups with God. He knows it all. He he sees it all. We can't hide from God, not our sin, not our thoughts, none of it. And it doesn't take long before David is confronted by one of his very good friends, a prophet by the name of Nathan, about his sin. And God reveals what happened to Nathan. And Nathan comes to David and he tells a story. And it's a story about a man who has lots and lots of sheep, a very rich man, and a poor man who has just one lamb. And this lamb is his pet lamb that he loves and that he cherishes. And the wealthy man is expecting a visitor, but he doesn't want to kill one of his sheep to feed this visitor. And so he steals the pet lamb from the poor man and kills it to feed his visitor. And and David is outraged. He, He immediately sees the problem with this story and he says, that man should die. And in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, we see this. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And then he says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of that had been too little, I would have given you even more. 
And this is where we see yet another defining moment in David's life. But, but before we talk about what David does next, I want to recognize the reality of the situation a little bit because the truth is that sin has consequences. You know, we all know that. Scripture tells us that, yes, but we, we know it in our lives, don't we? We've all either made decisions that have come close to wrecking our lives or we've watched people close to us make decisions that have ruined their lives. And sometimes we look at it and we go, why can't you see that your decisions are what's causing this in your life? Well, that's going to happen to David too. And if you skip down to verse 11, it says, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. And then he says this, just to kind of twist the knife a little bit. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And from this moment on, things went wrong in David's life. You know, the baby that he conceived with Bathsheba dies. And one of David's daughters is raped by one of his sons, a man by the name of Amnon. And then another son is upset with this and goes and kills Amnon. And so he's now lost a daughter and a son and a baby. And then uh, there's a coup against David. And then that son dies. And and then there's another coup attempt. And as we start to review this story, what we see is that David, who walks so closely with God, starts to have tragedy after tragedy in his life. And it reminds us of this truth. And this is the second thing I think we can take away. One of the consequences of sin is to further separate our lower story from God's upper story. You know, early on in David's life, he was walking closely with God. His story was kind of like God's story. But when this sin happens, here's what we see. David has a lower story, just like the rest of us. You know, his lower story was really good. He had some moments, sure. But for the most part, it was really good. But, but after this incident with Bathsheba and with Uriah, we see David decline, and lots of really bad things happen in his, in his life as a result of his sin. It's sad, really. And we look back on David's story, and we see many defining moments along the way. We, we see places where he could have made one decision that would have turned this whole story around and made it better. I mean, David could have gone to war. He, he, he could have seen Bathsheba and turned away and gone back down to his room. He, he could have, when he found out she was Uriah's wife, he could, have, he could have put a stop to the whole thing. Well, that's it. I know that guy. I'm not going to do that. And then even after he got her pregnant, he could have fessed up. We don't know what would have changed, but in every situation, he made the wrong decision. And as a result, his life goes downhill. And that could be the end of the story, except for one thing. This one more defining moment where David makes the right decision, and it changes everything. You know, even today, long after that story, God called David a man after my own heart. And in fact, God decided to give him another son with Bathsheba. And that son was a man by the name of Solomon, who we'll talk about next week. And Solomon went on to become the king of Israel. Like God decided, in spite of his sin, to keep the kingdom of Israel in his family. And David is in the lineage of Jesus. So he's in the ultimate royal family. And if you turn your, book in the, in the, or turn your Bible in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you read what's sometimes called the Hall of Faith. It's a list of amazing people, uh, people from the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews felt fitting to canonize, in a way, uh, in this shrine of faithfulness. And right there among them is David. You know, David the adulterer, David the murderer is listed right there alongside Abraham and Joseph and Gideon and Samuel and other heroes of the faith. And there's no asterisk after his name. There's, there's no little footnote that says, well, except for the little Bathsheba incident. There's nothing like that. David is there, and it's all because, I think, of this one defining moment where David made the right decision. You see, when Saul was king of Israel, 
and he was confronted with his sin, he denied it. He, he blamed it on his men. He, he made excuses. He tried to cover up what he did, but not David. Listen to his response. When Nathan comes at him strong and hard with these accusations, here's David's response. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, it says this, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. That's his response. I'm owning it. I'm taking ownership. I'm going to confess right now. I'm going to come out and confess my sin. And David went on to write one of the most, I think, the most beautiful poems about sin and forgiveness ever written. And if you ever read the Psalms, you read Psalm 51. This is a poem that he wrote after this sin and after being confronted by Nathan. It says in part this, and uh, this is from a slightly different version, but it says, Create in me a pure heart, God. And make my spirit right again. Do not send me away from you or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Give me back the joy of your salvation. Keep me strong by giving me a willing spirit. And maybe you're here today and you're afraid that if you fess up, like that God's not going to take you back. And that's what David's writing about. He so much wants to be a part of God's story that he's saying, God, take me back. Create me a pure heart. But in fact, I think this is the third thing we can take away from this story. Confession is the key to healing. Confession is the key to healing. If we have sin in our lives, if you have sin in your life, which is all of us, and you're feeling broken by your sin, Scripture teaches us that confession is the key to healing. In James 5, it says it this way, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And if you've got sin in your life, you've got people all around you that are dying to pray for you. You know, you've just got to confess to them. Now, maybe you're worried about what people are going to think, that, that if you own up to your sin, people aren't going to like you anymore. You know, we're so worried that what people will think less of us or, or they'll desert us. And, that, and that's true. Some so-called friends uh, might do that. They may choose to walk away when they find out we're not perfect. But the real friends in our lives, the ones like this that are willing to call us out in love, uh, they won't do that. They won't abandon us. I mean, if you're caught in something, if you've been hiding from something, if you've been running from something, if you've been denying something, maybe it's time for you. You know, if you've been feeling broken by your sin, if you feel oppressed by it, if you feel trapped, if you've been trying to fight it, confession is the key to healing. You have to get it out in the open. Now, if you're hearing this and you've got something going on in your life, there's a chance that you're hearing a voice right now saying, now's your chance. You can get it out. You can make this happen. You can come clean today. But right behind it is another voice that's going to say, don't you dare. It's hopeless. It's not going to work. People won't know. People won't understand. Last week we talked about how to identify those lies in your life and how important that is. Well, when you confess something for the first time, it might feel hopeless. But it's not. You may feel like you're at the end of your rope, but you're not. Don't let that stop you because confession is the key to healing. Now, I heard a wise person say one time that sunlight makes the best disinfectant. Now, you know, you may be thinking there's no way nobody's going to understand. And the fear of that initial confession is what's keeping you from being healed. Like you're a prisoner to your own insecurity. But David, who throughout this whole story made poor decision after poor decision and watched the consequences pile up on top of him and saw his life start to fall apart before his eyes. He somehow decides that at this moment, at this defining moment, in this intersection, he's going to make the right decision. And he owns up to his sin. And listen to Nathan's reply, second half of twelve thirteen. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. And then he says, you're not going to die. What a testament to the power our words have. You know, simple confession 
and the Lord takes away our sin. I mean, the truth is, for all of us, God would love it if we were all a little more like Uriah. You know, if we were a loyal servant, if we were full of integrity. But the beautiful thing about God, and I'm going to tell you personally, one of the reasons, one of the very reasons that I'm even a Christian is that even when we mess up big time like David did, he still wants to take us back. He, he still wants to forgive us. He still wants to redeem that, whatever happened in our lives. By owning what we've done, we can be healed. And, and, and for us today in 2013, we have the privilege of having God's own son, Jesus, who's already taken the punishment for us. He's ready and waiting to mediate on our behalf. It's why for hundreds of years, hundreds of years later, even after Jesus died, while his disciple Peter was giving one of his very first sermons, he said this, He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he said, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. And so I hope you can hear, it doesn't matter how far off you feel from God today. I hope you can hear, it doesn't matter what you've done to this point. It doesn't matter how far away you feel or what you've done. You need to know that today, before you've left here this morning, that you can turn from your sin. You can pray for forgiveness. And if you're not a Christian, you can receive that gift of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, you can hear those sweet words that Nathan told David. You are not going to die. I mean, this morning, you can be forgiven of your sin. You can be healed of your past. And you can have eternal life. And if God can redeem a man who messed up as bad as David did, imagine what he could do with your life. Would you pray with me? Father God, I'm so thankful for that truth that you are waiting there for us to come back to you, that you're waiting for us to own up to our sin, to confess when we make a mistake. God, I thank you that you surround us with people who um, will understand, who love us for who we are, and that as, as we confess, God, we just acknowledge that it's going to be hard, that, that there are things that we don't want to come out, but Lord, that the, the path to healing is worth it. That if we're going to be set on a direction, we want to be set on a direction that brings us closer to you, and not further away from you. And so God, I just pray this week for great courage. As, as we all go our way, we leave here today and, and we've got this thought in our head that maybe I've got something I need to confess. Maybe I need to apologize. Maybe I need to forgive. Maybe I need to own up to what I've been fighting with and struggling with. And we're going to leave here today and that thought's going to be in our head. But then, God, that life's going to happen and Monday's going to come and we're going to be at work and we're going to go right back into our routines. Would you help us this week to remember the forgiveness, the redemption that is in the story of David. God, as we continue in prayer, I just want to lift up to you people in this room who who may not even know you, who who may not have a relationship with Jesus, and they just don't feel like they have any place to turn. I I want them to know that even today, before they leave, that they can have that relationship with you, that you've sent Jesus for us to die so that he could take on our sin, but so that we could have a personal relationship with you so that we could be one-on-one with you, so that your Holy Spirit could come and live inside of us, God, and help guide us and help direct us in those defining moments where we so need your wisdom and guidance. And so as we continue in prayer, if you're in this room today and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life and you want to do that today, uh, you can do that. I'd love to pray with you. Would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to call your name. I'm not going to call you out. I would just love to pray alongside of you. You can pray this prayer with me. Father, I need you in my life. I need you to send uh, your Holy Spirit to live in me. I confess that I've made mistakes, that I've sinned, and, and I want your son, Jesus Christ, to pay that penalty for me. So would you send your Holy Spirit in me? Would you give me his wisdom and his guidance and his direction and help me to not have to fight these battles on my own? 
God, we thank you for the truth in your word this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.